Welcome to Thursday in the City, and joining us this week for a panel discussion on books to read before you die is, uh, let me just introduce our panel, is Scott Moore, and Scott is Associate Professor of Philosophy and Great Texts at, <laughs> at Baylor University. He, he uh, wow, we, we uh, security, you could do, Robert, Jeremy, um, he, uh, Scott holds, this is the last, this is the last one of the season, so we're, we lost our screen, did we lose our screen? Okay, yeah, we're just, this is all kind of falling in on us, but anyway, um, it's a good thing we're talking about books to read before you die, it might be sooner than you think. Um, okay, Scott, anyway, if I make conclude the bio. Uh, he holds the Master of Divinity from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and the PhD from Baylor University. Uh, his academic specialties include philosophy and literature, hermeneutics, and philosophy of religion. Dr. Moore is the author of The Limits of Liberal Democracy, Politics and Religion at the End of Modernity. And I, when we did, we did a, a, uh, an old midweek in the city on that very book, didn't we, um, several years ago. That's on InterVarsity Press, and I know we've got a fan of that book out here somewhere, uh, uh, and uh, his upcom- uh, Dr. Moore's upcoming book is entitled The Poetry and Prose of Wendell Berry, New Adventures in Agrarianism. Is that, did I get that right? Uh, okay. D- is it not right? Okay. That's completely a lie. So uh, I will. Is it about Wendell Berry at all? Wendell's in it. Um. <laughs> okay, wait, wait, <laughs> wait. Scott is also a farmer, and since he's a philosopher and a farmer, I always spell farmer with a ph when I'm talking about Scott Moore. Uh, so anyway, the title of the book is How to Burn a Goat: Farming with the Philosophers. Okay. All right. All right. You need to change your bio page. In, uh, on, uh, but anyway, how, is it really called How to Burn a Goat? Is it available now? It, it'll be available this fall. Okay, all right. How to Burn a Goat. All right. I don't think the administration wanted that title on there or something. Because uh, Also joining us on this frivolous Thursday evening is Lou Marcos. Uh, Lou is professor, professor of English at Houston Baptist University. He holds the MA and the PhD in English from the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. Um, Dr. Marcus's academic specialties include British Romantic poetry, we'll have you back for Valentine's Day, uh, literary theory and the classics. He's also an authority on C.S. Lewis, as some of you know, and he lectures on ancient Greece and Rome for HBU's Honors College. Uh, Dr. Marcus's books include The Eye of the Beholder, How to See the World Like a romantic poet, and this is available on Amazon again for Valentine's Day. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, that trivializes the romantic poets, doesn't it? It's not even the same thing. From Achilles, another book of his is from Achilles to Christ: Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics, and we did a uh, a uh, midweek in the city on that book as well, uh, several months ago or a couple of years, and, and Lewis. Agonistes, how C.S. Lewis can train us to wrestle with the modern and postmodern world. So, would you please welcome our guests to Thursday in the City?
Welcome to How to Burn a Goat. Uh, okay. Before we, get, before we get to the actual book titles, and, and each, of, each of these uh, folks has, um, came with a stack of book titles to share with us, but before we get to those, um, I, I would like to uh, mention that one of the ways that I talked about this event in the last couple of weeks <clears throat> was to say that, that you and I, all of us really, uh, have questions on our minds, things that we've thought about uh, that we've thought maybe nobody else has ever thought about before. And um, we might even feel out of place in the world for wrestling with such a thing. It's, it's as if uh, sometimes we feel that we, we were the only ones who didn't get the memo on how this kind of thing is supposed to function in life. Um, but there are people, and, and this is what I've said in the last couple of weeks in promoing this, there are people who've had the same kinds of questions, who've wrestled with those and thought long and hard about those and have written books that stand the test of time about those very kinds of questions, uh, both, both Christian and pre-Christian folks. I mean, uh, they've, they've, we all wrestle with those same things. And these books that they've written that wrestle with those same questions cause us to see those questions in a new way and perhaps to see the, the world in, in a, a light that we haven't ever seen before. And that's the rationale that I've put out there about why we need to read certain books. Uh, any, any thoughts on, on any of that? I mean, you may, maybe you just say, go, go burn a goat. And I, I don't know. But uh, isn't, aren't there these questions that we've... Of course. Yeah. I mean... These questions that we find in the books that people have been reading for centuries and, um, and in the last century that, that ask perennial questions, we recognize that there's nothing new under the sun. Um, one, of the, one of the books that's not on our list, that should have been on our list, it wasn't on your list and it wasn't on my list, was Virgil's Aeneid. And uh, this great story, a mythological story of the founding of ancient Rome, but at one early point in that book, um, he is shipwrecked in North Africa, and he, he has a plan. He knows where his life's supposed to go, but he falls in love with the wrong person at the wrong time in the wrong place. And this has happened to so many people, right? And we begin to ask ourselves, is, yeah. this, is, is this a detour, or is this my destiny? Mm. And how do I tell the difference? Okay. What, what do I do? And, and these books help us articulate ways to understand the emotions and the the questions and the problems that we're struggling with because we recognize that human beings have always struggled with these questions and one of the ways that we get better is by talking with and learning with those who've traveled the road before us and are probably smarter than we are. Well, and these, so these aren't really necessarily highfalutin questions or alien to our experience, right? I mean, you would agree with that, Lou. Is that, is oh, that yeah, right? I mean, you that? know, you, you hear that cliche, human nature never changes. Yeah. But it's not until you read the Iliad and the Odyssey 2,800 years ago and realize as strange as these people are, as odd as the situation is, they are struggling with the same thing. They're asking the same questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What does it mean to be mortal? that it really doesn't change, and that's important to know. I guess there are questions that each, that unique cultures may struggle with in, the, in that culture, but there are questions that transcend those right. cultures. And so even though we may be separated by, uh, by millennia and by culture, 
they, we still wrestle with these same things. Okay, well, um, let's get right then to the, to the books. And um, but again, before we die. And so uh, the, the, the first book that I, I want to bring up here is this story of, of a very reluctant it's it's a basically an autobiography of a very reluctant convert to Christianity, and you're the one who had mentioned uh, that. So, well, this is the Confessions by Saint Augustine. Yeah. So Saint Augustine um, was a North African whose mother was very pious and whose father was not, and um, in this great book, the Confessions, he tells the story of his life and how um, how he drifted away from the piety of his mother and uh, the good influences and the ways in which, you know, friendships can have an effect of, of corrupting us and his own ambitions and his desires and how he was gradually brought back to faith in Christ. And one of the things that we see is that his, his story is so similar to the story that lots and lots of us have had uh, and that is um, um, is a, a source of great comfort and great hope when we realize that you know the saints weren't always saints. Well, he fathered a child out of wedlock. I mean, he he was uh, he was an ambitious bastard, and and God brought him. He didn't say pastor. By the way, uh, is that one of the words we can't say? I know. Uh, we'll edit it out. Sorry. Uh, that's okay. Um, well, he was a jerk, you know, and uh, we can say jerk. Right? Yeah, we can. Okay, I'm I, sorry. I just think I'm, it's hilarious. I, I just sorry. No, no, it's it, this is this it, is salty night. Anyway, this is salty night. Uh, um, it could get worse. They have, more, <laughs> and it has. It has gotten worse with uh, Scott. They, uh, they have more leeway at Baylor than HBU. <laughs> it's just what we thought about Baylor. Uh, by the way, anyway. It's a technical term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he, he was he was he was sort of licentious, was he not? Of he had that yes. famous line, "God give me chastity and continence, uh, but hold yeah, not yet. Hold, hold off on that." Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, he, and and this was what year? What time period are we talking about here? We're talking about the end of the Roman Empire. Okay. Right. So this is the early four hundreds A.D. Okay, wow. So the, the fifth century there, and, and uh, so uh, we think of that, we think of people as completely different back then, but you just told us a story that we've heard before, actually, and we've, we know people, yeah. uh, and we may yeah. be those people. We are those people. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, our lives are oftentimes not as interesting as Augustine's, but, but we've been down the same road. I mean, he, he has this wonderful story in which he talks about being with a bunch of buddies and how they broke into uh, an orchard and they stole a bunch of pears. Uh, and uh, and they did it for the heck of it. Uh, uh, and, for the what? Uh, the, the heck of the it. Heck okay. Of it. They were just they were just raising cane. Mm -hmm. They did. They weren't hungry. They didn't need them. They wanted to do it the same way. You know, young men sitting around on a Friday night wondering what can they get into. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's okay. funny from from what you said. I remember reading the the confessions, and again, it's it's pretty thick. He's going through. Manichaeism, Neoplatonism, all these different things working his way to Christianity. But then as you read it, suddenly it strikes you, this is a testimony. This is not that mm. different from a testimony I yeah. heard at church 
Most testimonies you hear at church don't get into philosophical and theological disputation. Right. But ultimately it is, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but right. now I see. And the it, 30, it's a testimony. I guess the 30,000 foot view then, like you said, right. is you, you, he tried these different right. things. And, uh, and some of them had an influence had on an him. an itch he was trying to scratch, and he really? couldn't oh, scratch yeah, yeah. the itch. Yeah. I mean, he couldn't figure out how to solve his problems. Yeah. And we do the same thing. We run from political movement to, you know, artistic or aesthetic, you know, preoccupation. We think all of these things are going to fill the, the, the God-sized hole in our lives. Mm. And it, they won't. They ultimately will fail. He's describing C.S. Lewis's version of the confessions called the uh, Pilgrim's Regress. Oh, yeah, Pilgrim's uh, Regress. Okay. Difficult book. Um, all right. So that's the confessions. Uh, by Saint Augustine, uh, and and by the way, he was he was a a pastor, really a, a bishop, uh, was he not? Eventually, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I did say pastor uh, at that time. Um, anyway, um, okay. So, Lou, let's let's talk about uh, another one of these books. The Take us to the beginning of Western literature. And let me just say, when we say Western, we're not talking about Zane Gray. We're talking about the Western hemisphere. Uh, it, the, it is so daunting to be an author, a poet, a novelist in the Western tradition because the first, really the first book in the Western tradition is the best one. There's nowhere to, nowhere to go but down. It starts with the Iliad and the Odyssey. I mean, it doesn't start slowly with, you know, like some antique old uh, silent movies and then get better and right, better. Right. You begin with a bang, and it's so daunting, right? But the amazing thing about the Iliad is it was carried down by oral tradition. So, so this, is, this is Homer's Iliad yeah, you're this talking is Homer's about Iliad. here. Yeah. Homer's okay. not making it up. He's gathering together all these stories, this oral tradition, these folk tales, but then he's giving it his own polish. And what he did is he decided the best way to tell the story of the Trojan War is to put Achilles at the center. Now, Achilles has a human father named Peleus and a divine mother, the goddess Thetis. She's a goddess of the sea. Now, here's the interesting thing. In Greek mythology, if only one of your parents is divine, you're still mortal. You don't get to be immortal unless both of your parents are gods. You're, you're not a, a half god right. I mean, or a demigod or whatever. You call yourself a demigod, but you're, you're not special. You're okay. not going to live forever. Okay. And what's wonderful about this is, as we read it today, I mean, in some ways, we were meant to live forever. If we hadn't eaten of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, we would have had the tree of life right there, and we would have eaten it. We were meant. And the back, the, the Iliad has a backstory, and the backstory is, Achilles was supposed to be the son of Zeus and Thetis. He was supposed to be divine. But Zeus had heard a prophecy that this Thetis would create a son who would be greater than his father. And so he forced her to marry a human to avert the threat to his throne. Wow. That's the backstory. Okay. All you right. kind of have to know when you read the Iliad. Sure. Right? So when you read the Iliad and Achilles, this fearless warrior, is obsessed with his own death. He's not afraid of pain, like most of us would be, but he's obsessed with death and mortality, and the whole Iliad is him struggling with that. And that's mm. something we all have to struggle with. None of yeah. us can even imagine our own death. That's right. right? How, how can we die? And yet, we are mortal, we're going to die, and the first great book, at least in the Western tradition, 
is very much about what it means to be mortal, how you struggle with that, what it leads to. He pulls out of the war. He goes back into the war. And in the end, he's got to learn that what it means to be mortal is not only that you're going to die, but you're going to lose somebody that you're going to love. Mm. And so being mortal means learning how to grieve, learning how to move on and deal with it. And there's a wonderful line in the Iliad that says, the gods have given mortals hearts that can endure. And that was written by a pagan, you know, 2,800 years ago. Wow. But I think it's true. I mean, you know, all of us have probably been through some kind of grief. And sure. you think that you cannot move on. You will never be able to move on. But slowly, God gives us the ability to endure and move on. Well, see, this, is, does it. this is one of those questions that we, we wrestle with and we think... Uh, Nobody, you know, I've been dealt this hand and I can't possibly make it through. And if, we, if we're reading something like this, it's not just a pep talk, Good. right? I mean, it, it is some, somebody that really has thought seriously about that and has been through the ringer. A lot of times when we, when we hear people giving pep right. talks, they get paid to do that. Right. Or, or they, you know, they have all these platitudes that they dispense, you, you know, pull up a bunch of YouTube videos or whatever. They're, they're professional pep talkers, right. you know. Uh, but, but this is the story of, this is Achilles right. growing and having been through uh, this pain, right? We actually right. see him growing in this. We do. Uh, we, we see him growing. We see him dealing. We, we see him at the end of the Iliad. He grieves with the father of his enemy. And they grieve together. They share in their, you know, communal mortality. Wow. And they can, it, it, it just real quickly, I, I speak a lot on the line, the witch in the wardrobe. We talk about the, the death of Aslan. Right. And one of the things I talk about there is that in, I remember watching a cartoon version with my daughter. And the thing that struck her the most was not that they killed Aslan, but that they shaved off his hair. And she reacted to the humiliation. Uh. And I think when I suddenly realized at whatever age it was that the worst part of the crucifixion was not the pain on the cross. Mm -hmm. When you're that's a Baptist, right. that's all they ever want to talk about. Yeah, right. is the pain, the worst part was <laughs> the betrayal, the humiliation, right. the being that's spat right. upon. And, and that's when you suddenly realize, oh my gosh, Jesus can I, I identify with me when I am feeling humiliated and betrayed and depressed and cast out. Brilliant. And then you realize it's a savior that really identifies with you. And we find that... Who is lesson. not far right. from your suffering. Right. Uh, because and we see with that in regular that. literature too, not just the Bible. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, okay, Th this, is, this is great. Um, and, and uh, all right, let's, let's move uh, again to... Um, Let me oh, just yeah, yeah. add about the Iliad. I mean, this is this really an extraordinary story. It is the context of the Trojan War. So we, we have this, these Greeks, Achilles is, on the, is with the forces of the Greeks who go to Troy, which is in modern-day Turkey, uh, to try and uh, reclaim the wife of one of the um, sort of warlords, tribe, kings, Menelaus, uh, who's been betrayed and has, she has run off with uh, pretty boy Paris. Uh, and... and and all men recognize that when sort of one pretty girl um, uh, humiliates one of you, that collectively you're required to go off and do something stupid uh, <laughs> together. And this is the story of the Trojan War, 
Have we learned nothing? We have learned uh, nothing in 2,800 <laughs> years. And, and in the midst of this, we, we meet Achilles when he's pouting. Because what's happened is, in the pecking order, he's lost one of his prizes, a, a, a slave girl. And he refuses, he's the very best warrior, and he refuses to fight, right? I mean, it's, it's as if, you know, LeBron James refused to play, you know? Right. Um, and, and so we, we can't figure out at first whether we, we really like this guy or we really don't like this guy. And then all of a sudden we begin to realize that we really are like him. Because yeah. Because we, we have these we, There's something familiar and then we realize, right, oh, my and, word. Apart from being great warriors uh, and, you know, <laughs> uh, and looking like Brad Pitt. Uh, uh, you know, this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Greek uh, that Hollywood puts up there. Um, right. But, um, but no, I mean, this, this is the context within which we see these life struggles. And we're talking, it's, it's extraordinary. Man, we, we need y'all speaking over our shoulders as we're reading these books on, on the beach this summer. Um, okay, th- then moving then to an extraordinary account of suffering, again, by a, somebody that we don't hear very much about. And she was really the writer of the first book in the English language. Is that right? Um. Maybe? No, probably okay. not. Okay. I mean, but see, it all depends just, on what counts as a let's book. Let's just say that. And what counts as the English language. So just don't worry about that. But okay. One of, all right. But probably. I got, the, I got an F just probably, now. Probably. Uh, no, it's a C plus, really. It's much, <laughs> it's much better than an F, Brian. Uh, uh, no, the, the book that we're talking about is the revelation of, uh, Revelations of Divine Love or the Showings of Divine Love by a woman named Julian of Norwich. And um, it's a woman, she's an anchorite. She separates herself from her, uh, from her community. An, an anchorite. Yes. Uh, uh-huh. as, uh, coming from the word anchor, that they hold down the, you the know, prayer vigil. I don't really vigil. know where, where the connection is. I don't know, that's what I always... Um, give, give me extra credit for that. Extra credit, we're up to a B-. minus. <laughs> uh, the, sh- the, the showings are the revelations of divine love is her encounter, her reflection on a series of mystical visions, revelations that she has. When she was sick, right? Um, part of it is when she's sick. Okay. Yes. Right. Um, and when she thinks she's about to die. And, um, and in fact, she wants to die. And, you know, some of us have been in situations where our pain is so great, either physical or emotional, that we just think, you know, I just want to punch my ticket. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and she's in this place, and Christ comes to her with these visions of, um, of his own suffering and her suffering and the world's suffering and, and the capacity to, to embrace that suffering and to go forward. And Julian is perhaps best known for a, a phrase that is repeated at numerous times in the text, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And it's not optimism. It's not, you know, tough-minded, well, let's just, we're going to make the best of it. No, optimism and hope are not the same thing. I'm glad you said that. And and hope is a a theological virtue. It is a gift of of God that that the future lies in God's hands. And all of our hand-wringing and heavy breathing and difficulties that we come at, this is not 
the solution to the problem. The solution to the problem is, in fact, to put ourselves into God's hands uh, and to, to make wise choices and to be prudent, but nonetheless to recognize that the solution and the salvation does not rely on us. Mm. Now, Scott, <clears throat> the you know, in our day and time, and um, this is probably, I guess, a function of the fact that we do live in in a, we want to live in an optimistic sort of field of, of reference. And so we think uh, 30 minutes in heaven, or we think, you know, if, if it's going to be visions, it's got to be the bright light and the, and the, um, and the come rest in peace child. This is not what she, I mean, this was visions of Christ's suffering, and there may, there may have been some comfort there, but it had to do with suffering. Right, right. And, and she, she is, um, um, she, she wants to learn how to embrace that suffering. Mm. Wow. Well, you know that the and I mentioned to some folks a few weeks ago that that was um, that's that phrase from Julian is in the on one of the bricks um, at Brooks College there, and I I just I saw that often dur- during a time that I I needed to be reminded that uh, things were not spinning out of control. You know, all manner of things shall be well. Yeah. Yeah. Not all the things are going to be great. All right. manner of things shall be well. Mm. Which Beautiful. is sort of like all things work together for good, if you yeah. understand it that, properly. Absolutely. <laughs> it, it, right. it is in that context, you know, that she, uh, it seems like, yeah. you know, she was receiving that. Well, it, it's great that, that Scott mentions hope because, you know, in 1 Corinthians, the three great virtues, they're called the Christian or theological virtues, mm-hmm. are faith, hope, and love. And I think people understand faith and they understand love, but the one that's been left out is hope. And it's not empty optimism. And I put on my list from the beginning to the end, from Homer all the way down to the Lord of the Rings. And the Lord of the Rings is also a book about what it means to be mortal, but it's also a book about hope. Now, there's lots of, you know, death and destruction and pain and suffering, but the reason people love the character of Sam in The Lord of the Rings, both the book and the movie, is that Sam is an embodiment of hope. Yeah, that's right. It's not, again, it's not simple idea. It's not naivete. He knows how dangerous it mm-hmm. is, but and he I, still stands on that there, hope. There is a sinewy, sort of a vigorous... Good. Um, um, Soft as butter, but hard as tree roots. Robustness, yeah, exactly. Uh, yes, yes, that's exactly right. And, and that's the, the hope that we see. The, for the hope set before him, he endured the cross, you know, Jesus. So... Um, I, we need to know the difference between hope and optimism, and I don't, I don't think, I don't think I've ever, you know, uh, juxtaposed those two. But I, I need to start doing that. Um, okay, Lou, talk to us about Plato. There we go. I mean, there, there, there in, is in particular Plato's Republic. This Plato's is a, Republic. Now, it's, it's really funny. I mean. I, I mentioned the Iliad, but probably the first book I read that changed my life was the Odyssey. It's a little bit easier. But Which then, is also Homer. Which is also yeah, Homer. Yeah. But then, I still remember this. Way back when I was in high school, I had a really good teacher, an English teacher. And it's really funny. I went to all secular schools, and most of my mentors were secular Jewish teachers. Okay. And I think the reason was that the Christian teachers were all Christians that were 
you know, in, 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 in flight from their own Christianity, sort of self-hating, self-loathing. Mm. But most of the Jewish teachers didn't have an axe to grind. You know, they, they weren't like attacking the Christianity right. of their youth. And right. so I found them to be more objective in all, in both high school and un undergrad and graduate school. But I, I, I wish I could remember, but I remember I said something to this teacher in high school, probably a little bit snide. And he said to me, you can't make that statement unless you've read all of Plato's Republic. And so I went and read all of Plato's <laughs> Republic. And I probably went back and told him I was right because I was being a little snide. Now, I don't remember what it was I said, but I do remember that that challenge to make me to read the whole Republic and not just parts of it, not just a Cliff Notes version, right. but to actually dig into it. It's one of Plato's dialogues. And if you want to understand the joy of discussion, the joy of dialogue, of throwing it back and forth, back and forth. You read the Republic. The whole Republic is, has a simple question. What is justice? And it's a book that even though it was written about 2,400 years ago, we need it today because we've forgotten what justice means. Mm. And in the dialogue, there's this guy named Thrasymachus, and he says, justice is the will of the stronger. Today, we would say might makes right. The winner writes the history books. Make Athens great again. Go, go, oh. <laughs> there we go. That's right. <laughs> and, See? And it's everything's it's relevant. just like everything's now. Everything's relevant, right? And Plato, and, Maga Nation, you know, and, here we and go. And what's great uh, is, is that when you read that at any age, especially when you're young, you think Thrasymachus is the utilitarian one. He's the realist. He's the practical, pragmatic one. Of course he must be right. Anybody that thinks justice is something other than that is just idealistic and naive and childish. Mm -hmm. And we need a whole long, you know, Plato's um, dialogues are usually short. He only wrote two books that are book size. One is called The Laws, the other is The Republic. He needs 10 books to try to get back to an understanding of justice that it is beyond who the winner is, that there are real standards of justice. And what I love about this book, again, written so long ago, is it is willing to answer the difficult question. And here's the difficult question. Well, what about an unjust man that does anything he wants, but everybody thinks he's just, and he wins, and he gets all the money and everything, mm. and another person who does what is just, and he ends up being killed? Plato's thinking about Socrates. We think about Jesus when we read that. That's right. How can it possibly be a good thing to be just? So and, he's asking the difficult question. And the Old Testament asks yeah, the same thing. That's right. You know, Job and things. Uh, yeah. It's, it's like asking, why should I major in English or history or, or, or philosophy or anything like that? And Plato doesn't shy away from this difficult, pragmatic question. Mm. And basically he shows that, you know, our souls, he calls them their tripartite. We have one side of our soul that's the appetitive, the I want, like the id or something, that wants and wants and devours and devours. And then there's the, the rational side that wants to do what is right and, 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 and logical. And then there's the part of us that he links to the chest that tries to decide between the two. And there's always this war going on in the soul. And if the unjust side wins, if the appetite wins, you're going to end up being miserable. He, the, the unjust man is the most enslaved person in the world because if you are a tyrant, then nobody tells you what to do. But of course, if nobody tells you what to do, then it's your lusts and your desires that tell you what mm, to do. Yeah. And whenever you listen to your lusts and desires, you end up living a miserable life. Yeah. He tries to show us that it's not only idealistic to seek after justice, 
But it's ultimately practical mm. because when we give ourselves over to sin and injustice and what, even if there is no heaven or hell, when you give yourself over to that, you end up unbalancing yourself and you end up a slave to your own base appetites. And I'm thinking, here's somebody, a philosopher, who is writing something that, that is true and that when I read this, I don't want to just think about it. I want to change my life and behavior. You want to live that way. I want yeah. to live that way and not live the other way. Yes. And again, this is somebody 400 years before Christ. Well, understanding right. Understanding the truth. And it is interesting to me that, that the, these people like Plato, uh, like, you know, like Aristotle uh, as well, uh, they, it was as if God was, was preparing the human race for ideas such as this. You know, uh, I mean, they weren't; they were pre-Christian people, but uh, but we were all being truth prepared. is God's truth. All, all truth is God's truth. That's it. If something is true, it doesn't matter whose mouth it comes out of; it is still true. Um, but as a human race, uh, we were beginning to be introduced to these very profound ways of thinking. One of the things that I forgot to tell y'all, um, and is Jeremy, is Robert still back there with the slides? Okay. Well, let me just tell you this. Uh, it, we're going to have a Q&A in just a little bit. Here's how we do that here. Go to slido, S-L-I-D-O dot com. And I'm so sorry to break in like this. Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And, or SLI.do, either way, it doesn't matter. Um, and, and then just enter that event code THINK, and you can type your question in, and I'll get it uh, on my phone. So uh, that's how we'll do the questions. And I'm so sorry that I had to interrupt uh, to do that because I forgot uh, to say anything about it earlier. Um, okay, so... Uh, yeah, that's that. All truth is God's truth. That, that's exactly right. Amazing, Plato's Plato's Republic. Um, in it, it is as you said a dialogue, and so you it, you kind of have to get into the rhythm uh, of that because it it can seem it's pretty detailed. I mean, they they really talk very in a very detailed manner uh, about that. But um, okay, Pilgrim uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Let's let's talk about that. John Bunyan. John Bunyan was a Baptist. Yes. Uh, among the great uh, intellectuals of the history of the world, we don't have a lot of Baptists uh, that have that make the uh, make that, the playoffs. Sad but, but true. But sad John but true. Bunyan is one of them, and uh, um, <laughs> and this is the second most the read playoffs. book in the English language. The. The, the second, second most, most read, read book in the English language. Behind the, the Bible? Behind the King James Version of the Bible. Wow. Um, and uh, it is a, it's an allegory. It's the story of um, a man named Christian and his uh, journey toward the celestial city. And it's all allegorical. I mean, the people that he meets and the encounters that he have all have names, goodwill, hope. Uh, oh, yeah. And... Um, and he is, uh, he, we see the experiences that he has both in his journey toward, first of all, conversion and uh, the, the burden of sin that he has, that he carries on his back in the form of a great pack. Uh, and then the journey that he makes through life, the pilgrim um, as we are, we're going through life. And it's a wonderful, it's a witty, I mean, 
I am, I am right with Lou on the importance of the Plato's Republic, and um, uh, and even at this moment, I'm trying to show temperance and not talking more about Plato. Uh, it, <laughs> no, please. It can, I mean, no, it can be challenging, but but the but the Pilgrim's Progress is something that anyone can read, and almost anyone can get something out of because it was written for a lay audience, and it has been. Many of you may have seen it performed in various places. It's a wonderful, wonderful text, and um, and it's extraordinarily accessible. The, I was I was going to say accessible was kind of how it Isn't was there a sounding. Movie that just came out or about to come out. There it it, it, oh, wow. came, it did come out a about, movie okay. called The Pilgrim's Progress, but I don't I don't know what kind of quality it oh, was. I, or that I have scares no me. Does it really? Yeah, I mean Hollywood's just going to mess up everything. <laughs> no, really. But but anyway, read read the book. At least before you go see the movie. The Pilgrim's Progress. Very good. John Bunyan. All right. Then let's move from there to the Divine Comedy. Lou? I want to mention something before I talk about it. I hope you've noticed that although Scott is the philosopher and I'm the literature guy, you can see that both of us, our real love is interdisciplinary. You've got to read the literature, the history, mm -hmm. the philosophy, mm -hmm. the art and music if you I'm can. glad you mentioned that. You, yeah. I mean, this is, and this Lou is got how to things come along. First. What's that? And Lou got to choose his books first. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, I was, I was quick. I was quick to the punch. Yeah. But Scott, uh, again, we, Scott we, sent a text to me that said he got all the good ones. We could have, uh, easily, so. we could have easily swapped our books because... Well, he, he took all the pagan ones. I took the Christian ones. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> I, I am Greek after all. I like the pagans. So, so you do get to say a few more uh, <laughs> bad words if you want. So that's fine. Uh, as, a, as a concession. Uh, but, all right. I mean... Dante is the one that brings it all together, the, the, the history. That, I mean, first of all, you can't fully appreciate Dante unless you know the history of ancient Greece and Rome and, and Don, the Dante, early church. Dante, the author yeah. of the, the Divine yeah. Comedy. I mean, you, yeah. you need to know that to understand. You need to know philosophy. I mean, there is no Dante's Divine Comedy without Aquinas, but then there's no Aquinas if you don't have Aristotle. Mm. So all of this, what we're talking about here this evening is what's often called the Great Conversation. We are part of this great, it begins with the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer and the five books of Moses, and as they come together to mm. create Western civilization through yeah. Augustine, who wrote the Confessions, as they come together, we are joined in this. And one of the things I love, three books I love, uh, uh, Virgil's Aeneid, Dante's Divine Comedy, and, and, and Milton's Paradise Lost. Mm. What do those three books have in common? In one sense, they are the most derivative books ever written, completely unoriginal. There isn't a line in any of those books that doesn't point back to something else. Mm. And yet, at exactly the same time, three of the most original books ever written, that you can work within the tradition, add your voice to it, and expand. Yeah, that's, that's really, I think, what makes it so um, profound yeah. is that the, these, are, these are conversations that have right. already been going on and they, they come to it and they, they give it urgency, right. don't they? I mean, right. the, you, these authors You need do. this. So, so in comes Dante. Dante is pulling together the best of pagan literature, uh, from, from Plato and Aristotle to Homer and Virgil and Cicero, bringing it all together, together with Augustine and the Bible and everything, and trying to understand many things. But one of the things is the nature of choice. And what Dante shows us is that our choices not only determine the lives that we lead, they determine the kinds of people we become. Mm. 
when you read Dante's Divine Comedy, we get to see what sin does to us. In some ways, our sin creates the punishment itself. There is a great... See, a lot of Christians have a hard time with hell because don't, aren't we supposed to love the sinner and hate the sin? Well, in Dante's Inferno, in hell, there is no sinner left. There's just the sin going on forever. Hmm. The sinner has, in a sense, morphed into his sin. And when we read Dante, Which we is understand horrible. that. Horrible, terrifying. Yeah. But we understand it dramatically when we read it. But then, w when they're going down the uh, Inferno, they're always turning left. It's like they're going in a, a knot, tying themselves up in knots mm. and all that. But then when he gets to purgatory, he's going the other way around. And he's slowly opening up. And our real humanity that God breathed into us at the beginning starts to open. Like a, I mean, when you read Dante's uh, Purgatory in Paradise, it is a movement into light, like a morning glory opening up to the sun. Wow. And you leave behind all that twist and darkness and, and bitterness and anger, and you're slowly opening up to love and grace. But mm. again, you can read that in theology or philosophy, but Dante makes it uh, dramatic. And, and, and again, yeah, accessible, I think, would apply it is, to, and it is to the Divine Comedy. And, and help us understand a little bit, Lou, um, words. Words uh, in, we kind of, um, you know, comedy right, here. Right. Talk about that. Now, a first bit. of all, the, the real name of the book is the comedy Il Comedia. It was afterwards, I think it was Petrarch that started calling it the Divine Comedy. So okay. Dante right. wasn't being stuck up. He just called yeah. it the comedy. The comedy. Yeah. Now, there's two reasons to call it a comedy. One is that it has a happy ending. It ends up and remember, it's not a tragedy. Right. It's a comedy. And, yeah. and remember, the Bible is a comedy, not a tragedy, because the Bible doesn't end with Armageddon. The Bible ends with the great marriage of that's Christ right. and the church and the new And it's not like we use them today, like, you yeah. know, ha ha, yeah, you know, it's comedy. It's, it's, yeah. it's, but there's another reason why it's called a comedy. And, and in, in the ancient world, if you were going to write a tragedy, it was supposed to be in a very high style, very dignified, gravitas. A comedy was allowed to mix together different styles. And when you read Dante's Inferno, I mean, it's like going to Baylor. There's four-letter words everywhere. Anyway, the, um, and, you know, it, it, and, and sometimes it, it can even get crude. I mean, fart jokes and stuff like that. But then as we move up to Purgatory wow. and Paradise, the diction sort of expands and gets more uh, you know, uh, grave and sublime and wow. things. But, but Dante needs to use the right language to expose everything so yeah. we can understand what sin does to us but what grace will do to us if we move into it. A absolutely beautiful. And by the way, it will never be made into a good and, movie. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. Go, go ahead. You know, students are always intimidated by this book um, because it is both things that Lou said. It does build on all of this philosophy and literature and history, and it's it's written by a guy who was essentially like Bono, right? I mean, he was he's a he's a he, he is he's a he's a famous um, poet songwriter politician, you know, a uh, friend of King's, um, and he gets exiled. And uh, at the beginning of this, I mean, he is sort of working out his political anguish and his strategies for or he, of how he's going to get back in power uh, when he get his political party back in. So the book can be intimidating because it's got all of those kinds of things. But it, it's also, it, it's a, it is a poem. And all of the cantos are only about 150 lines some a little less, some a little more. You can read, a, you can read there's a hundred cantos in the Divine Comedy. You can read any canto in about seven or eight minutes. And, and 
and, help us here. You, when you say canto, you're talking about the, it's little, a, the it's sections. It's a section. Yeah. section. Um, and so it's, and it's made up of three big set groups of cantos. The Inferno, the time in hell, the Purgatorio, time in purgatory, and then Paradise, the time in heaven. And one of the things that's really interesting is that, I mean, I, my favorite part is the middle section, the Purgatorio. And, um, and I've got all these evangelical students, and they don't believe in purgatory. And they think, well, I don't need to read this because I don't believe in this. And, <laughs> and, and what they discover is the purgatory is the only time that's on earth. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and this is about Christian discipleship. It's about sanctification. It's mm-hmm. about overcoming our sinfulness. And it requires community. It requires friendship. It requires it's art and music and life. There's work in the day and rest at night. I mean, the, the understanding of nature, all of the things that are part of our lives are this experience of sanctification that Dante and, and Virgil, as they're climbing the Mount, Mount Purgatory. Um, and and it's, a, it's a wonderful thing because we begin to see uh, something that oftentimes we in the Protestant world have closed ourselves off of, this, this uh, very powerful notion I mean, theologically, there are lots of questions we could ask about these kinds of things, but in terms of the literary presentation, it's have, wonderful. Have you met Jerry Walls? I have met Jerry. That's our yeah. professor at Houston Baptist, the Baptist who believes in purgatory. <laughs> wow. Interesting character. That's, that'll be another Thursday in the city we should bring uh, it up. Uh, time. But really, a, a lot of these are, are, will expand our thinking beyond narrow sectarian uh, kind of viewpoints, and it's necessary, I, I think. Um, all right, talk to us about G.K. Chesterton. Um. So G.K. Chesterton was um, uh, one of the most fascinating people of the early part of the 20th century. He was... Th- this is a newer person. Right, he, right. It was only 100 years ago uh, or a little over. He, yeah. um, he, he was principally a journalist. Um, um, he wrote for a number of magazines and, and um, uh, journals and serials. But he also wrote novels, he wrote poems, he wrote uh, essays. And orthodoxy is his investigation of the way in which right thinking is related to popular fads and fashionable movements. Okay, so, and again, the book, the particular book is Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is the title of the book. And it's about what does it mean to to think as a Christian, to, to have... To, to have, have right thinking. To have right belief is what it is. I, mean, I said thinking, but this is, this is this notion here. And it is witty. It is funny. Um, it's very accessible also. I mean, this is a guy who, as a journalist, knows his audience, and he's writing uh, for this. If Chesterton is not a part of your world, I just, I've got great news for you because your life is about to get better. Uh, yeah, truly. Reading Chesterton is absolutely wonderful one of the great Christian uh, writers and thinkers of, of all time, uh, somebody to whom C.S. Lewis was, uh, was very indebted and um, had a great, uh, great impact on who he was. But uh, Orthodoxy is one of his, his finest books. And, you know, uh, he, he wrote a collection of mysteries, too, the Father Brown mysteries, uh, G.K. Chesterton I, did, I and that was turned into Father a television Brown. series a, it's very good, yeah. Yeah, a few I, years ago. Uh, one line from Orthodoxy, just to give you a sense of it, he said that in the older days, people believed in the truth but doubted themselves. 
today mm. we believe in ourselves and we doubt the truth. That, uh, and he Jim, that kind of thing, his little, his little paradox. He, always, he yeah. always had those Twist. phrases that had these two uh, sort of parallel yeah. things with a hinge in the middle. W- one that was sort of like that is uh, Christianity has not has yes. not been, help me here, yeah. has not it, been, it tried been tried and, and, and found, wanting. found wanting. It's been found difficult, found difficult and left untried. Right. Yeah, it's just, it's just good stuff. Like yeah, you'll, you'll be amazed at how he just breathes common sense. I, I, I'm sure, Scott, like me, you wish you could have been there to watch the debates between Chesterton and George Bernard Shaw. Oh, yeah. They would actually do live <laughs> debates. And it's really funny because George Bernard Shaw, who wrote Pygmalion that became My Fair Lady, but he was very much a skeptic. Very, very tall, skinny guy with white hair. Yeah. And Chesterton was huge, right? <laughs> and, and, and actually, um, uh, um, Shaw was actually a vegetarian, interestingly. And apparently, oh, I, one of their little that. debates, uh, Chesterton looked at Shaw, tall, skinny guy, and said, Shaw, looking at you, one would think there's a famine in the land. And he looked <laughs> back at him and said, Chesterton, looking at you, one can understand the cause of it. <laughs> he was huge. So, Wow. Okay. So there's orthodoxy for you. Um, and uh, he was also kind of an absent-minded uh, professor type of guy, too. Uh, all right, Lou, take us into, we've, we've alluded to him. Now take us into C.S. Lewis territory here with uh, screw tape and the great divorce. Oh, great. I, I should say that Lewis, list, at the end of his life, I think it was Christian Century, asked C.S. Lewis to give him a list of the ten books that influenced him the most, and one of them was Chesterton's Orthodoxy. Mm. Virgil's wow. Aeneid was another, uh, Wordsworth's Prelude, wow. a lot of other really good works there. Um, but, okay, screw tape letters, if, 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 if you've never read C.S. Lewis, that's the best place to start. Screw tape letters is so accessible, it's a senior devil writing a series of letters to, letters to his nephew, teaching them how to tempt people. And see, that's the, you have to keep that in mind. Yeah. Everything is upside right. down in that. What's considered really good advice, and if you want to be successful, the, yeah, the, the demon, twist it around. screw tape, yeah. is you know, tell them all this bad stuff to do. And it, yeah. it really yeah. is amazing, and it uses satire and humor, but the reason why it should be read by anybody, but especially read it if you're a Christian, because what Lewis does in that book to make it difficult is he never deals with any, quote, big sins. We're not talking about murder, adultery, grand theft. Or, all the sins are very small, mm-hmm. little ones that we're all guilty of. And a lot of them are not only the sins, but the subtle way in which we justify our sins to ourselves. Right. And Lewis gets into what I call the psychology of sin. And so if you've ever been afraid that maybe you're a Pharisee, I can tell you how to find out. If you, can, <laughs> if you read the entire Screwtape Letters and you can find the sins of your friends and neighbors there and you can't find yourself, then you are definitely a Pharisee. Yeah. Because Lewis will make really. you laugh and just you, you suddenly realize, oh my gosh, a kind of conviction. But a different conviction. This is not a, a preacher shaking his finger at you. Yeah. This is a kind of thing where you're laughing and laughing and then suddenly you gasp for air and realize that we do that all the time. Exactly. You know, exactly. and we see it in everybody else, but not ourselves. Yeah, and, and it, it is, Lewis seems to be uh, really inside the mind of this demon. At one point, the junior demon says, you know, he's been, he has a patient. He has this Christian that he's tempting. The patient, and, yeah, and, the uh, patient is the and, Christian. Uh, and yeah. he says, you know, I've been working really hard trying to keep him from going to church. And, and Screwtape says, no, no, that's fine. You want him to go to church. 
Um, but when he's at church, just distract him and make him think about, you know, all the, 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 the things he hasn't done or the pretty girl that's sitting around the corner or whatever it is. And then afterward, make him feel good about himself because he went to church. Yes. Uh, and it's the most counterintuitive yeah. thing uh, that you, you, you want him to go to church. Yeah. Uh, wow. And understand that the whole tradition is behind Lewis. Lewis once said, there's nothing original in my work. Everything can be traced back to Augustine or Aquinas or Plato or Aristotle wow. or, or Boethius or any of them. Uh, he, he, the whole tradition is brought together and then put in the most accessible way possible. Oh, yeah. It, you know. Very few people are more, I think, if you, have, if you take the time, more accessible yeah. than, than Lewis. Um, great, oh, great the Great Divorce is yeah. his other great book about the nature of sin. It's the entire divine comedy in 100 pages. <laughs> what if people in hell could get on a bus and go to heaven and meet the saints? Literally yeah, get literally. on a bus let's, let's see what from this shabby yeah. part of town this that was great, hell, yeah. and they we'll ride this bus. And we yeah. can ride up there, and then if they meet people that are saved, what would happen if they try to convince them, even now, to get rid of their sin and accept grace? And Lewis helps us to understand how all but one of them choose to go back. Mm. They don't want to be in heaven. All they want is themselves, their right. sin, their bitterness, right. their, you know, on and on. And, their petty. and again, it's, it's almost always petty sins. For, for those who uh, refuse to acknowledge God and bow the knee, heaven is not good for them. You don't it's, want to be there. Yeah, you don't <laughs> want to be there. Absolutely. Um, I always thought that would be a really good movie if they did it well, uh, The Great Divorce. Um, sorry, I know Hollywood screws it up. But um, Okay, talk to us about Flannery O'Connor. These are, again, more modern writers, but uh, wow, she's something else. Flannery O'Connor was um, a woman from Georgia, uh, lived in the uh, 20th century, and uh, the book that we put on here was A Good Man is Hard to Find which is a collection of short stories. Uh, Flannery wrote two novels, but she's best known for her short stories. And uh, she had a um, uh, couple of books of, of short stories that uh, are really um, unforgettable. Well, they are, and let me just say this, Scott. I, I was reading along <clears throat> in that collection of short stories a few years ago, and I had to take a break because... They are so intense that I felt like I had been in a but intense horror, in a different house kind of, of horror. I mean, it's yeah. not intense. I mean, I mean, there is a long background of philosophy and of of literature that informs what Flannery does. But but she's speaking in the idiom of rural Georgia in Absolutely. the South, and um, and and this is a this is a great. It's a great American writer, but it's also a great Southern writer mm -hmm. and a great yeah. Christian writer, and um, and and she um, she pictures the in some ways the the real brutality of um, of our lives. And she the ways she is of, almost a horror writer, almost gothic. Uh, gothic yeah, yeah, I guess. I, I don't I don't like. Well, to I know. Use I, that. I, I I we've had this conversation yeah, before, yeah. but. but it, it, there is an element of the, of yeah, the there is a, grotesque. There is an element. She said that um, when people are hard of hearing, you've, you've got to scream. And when they're blind, you've got to write with large pictures. And yeah. so in some ways, she uses these elements to get people's attention, yeah. to see yeah. what's uh, involved. One of my 
favorites is the, the title of this uh, of the collection, The Good Man is Hard to Find. And it's a story of um, of a family that's going on a trip, and it's a pretty dysfunctional family. And uh, there is a, a grandmother who is um, uh, just a just a mean old woman uh, in yeah. lots of ways. And and there's an escape. There's a, a guy that's called the misfit who has escaped from a prison. And they're sort of reading in the newspapers about this this uh, murderer who's escaped from prison. And the car breaks down. And uh, and lo and behold, they encounter this misfit and his. Uh, his band of, uh, of of robbers, and I think the um, just talking with some friends about this just just a couple of days ago, I think the finest, uh, my favorite line in 20th century American literature comes in this story, and uh, this misfit is about to kill the grandmother, uh, and she says, "Oh Jesus, save me! Jesus, Jesus, save me!" And the misfit says. She'd have been a good woman had there been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. Wow. Yeah. How we we think about these these matters. So it's a it's a great collection of stories. They are difficult. They're funny. Yeah, they uh, are. Um, and they they have a kind of um, a kind of dark side. Um, Brian says horror. Uh, no. I would say dark. Okay. Uh, All right. One way to say it is that it's gothic in the way that Dostoevsky's gothic. It's not a horror story, but it okay. feels... Okay, yeah, right, I mean, right. The, the story he's talking about, A Good Man is Hard to Find, has one of the best, what I would call a negative apologetic, where the, the misfit basically says, you know, either Jesus rose or he didn't. Right. If he rose, then... Then we ought to different. forsake everything yeah, and... Everything, everything's great. Yeah. But if he didn't, then the world's mine. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's amazing because it, it's, a, it's what, but it's, it's the same thing you see in Dostoevsky. If God is dead, this is... Then what everything's else. permissible. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. And a lot of people do compare them often, O'Connor and Dostoevsky. I'd never uh, heard that compared before, but wow. Um, and, and you talked about, um, Scott, you talked about the inscrutability of the grace of God in reference to Flannery O'Connor in her writing. Yeah, there, say, say a little bit more about that. Well, there's a way in which I think lots of times we want to figure it all out and we want to explain uh, explain everything and put it neatly in a box. Right. And Flannery reminds us that God's grace is so much bigger and so much uh, so transcendent. It, it, it works in ways that we can't anticipate and, and so often cannot understand. Mm. Uh, and we... When we try to, when we try to close these things off, we we close ourselves off from from God's uh, God's grace. So one of my favorites in this section is a a story about entitled "Good Country People." Uh, is and, that the, uh, the leg, and, artificial yeah, leg? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And you've got um, you, you've got. I mean, I don't want to spoil it for you, but you've got this this woman who thinks of herself as very pious, and she. She sort of thinks that she's the arbiter of sort of, she knows who the good people are and who the bad people are. And, um, and this Bible salesman comes, uh, comes to visit. And, um, and she, she thinks that because he's a Bible salesman, he's good country people. That he could, well, he's not. He's a, he's a charlatan. He's a bad guy. But she can't tell that. She can't see. She has he's a, selling Bibles. She has a daughter who has rejected everything her mother stands for uh, and has proclaimed herself to be an atheist and has a Ph.D. in philosophy. 
uh, <laughs> and but she has a she has a wooden leg, and um, and and nobody sort of gets what's going on because the daughter thinks that well she'll 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 ruin and seduce the Bible salesman. The Bible salesman thinks that he can uh, he can actually seduce the daughter. In the end, he steals her leg. Uh, yeah. Uh, because he collects pretty, he collects that's oddities. Pretty cold. Uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty it's pretty rough. Uh, and all of it is about the world is not what we thought it was. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So the inscrutability there, you just you can't explain it all away. Um, and now we're going to we're going to round this out with something that we've alluded to, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, Lou. This is, I mean, I think it's, it's the great work of the 20th century. And I think it's also the great theodicy of the 20th century. Theodicy is a meditation on good and evil. Is there justice? Is there not justice? But just to start, Lord of the Rings, if, if you are a Christian and you are in the arts in any way, you want to somehow be a Christian and do something in the world of art, Tolkien is amazing because here is a novel that never mentions God and yet is one of the most Christian novels ever written. Now, the way he does it is because he's a Christian writer, but the book is set in an age that is not only pre-Christian, it's actually pre-Jewish. Beowulf, uh, and the, the biggest reason to read Beowulf, by the way, is so you can enjoy Lord of the Rings more, because <laughs> Beowulf didn't influence anything because it was lost for so long, uh, but you need to read Beowulf to understand Lord of the Rings. Beowulf was written by a Christian monk, but set in a pre-Christian setting. Mm. And so he is not imposing Christian ideas on there, but he is allowing the Christian worldview to bubble up in its understanding of virtue and hope. Uh, my son, when he graduated from high school, um, he got to give the valedictorian speech, and he ended his speech, I was so happy, by saying, as a wise hobbit once said, <laughs> it's a dangerous business going out your door. You step into the road, and if you don't watch your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Mm. And the, the, the adventure, the journey, this very reluctant hero who is set off, who's chosen, the smallest, like Israel, the smallest of nations, chosen. And we've got all these mighty characters, men and elves and dwarves, and yet it all rests on four little hobbits, the smallest people. But that, that's the God of the Bible who keeps choosing the younger son and the smallest mm -hmm. nation, yeah, and yeah. all of this. I mean, and so the entire biblical dynamic is in that book, but never in an obvious way. It right. bubbles it, up from the bottom. It's amazing. It, it is a, it's not a ham-fisted right. sort of, you know, this is an allegorical kind of thing. Um, I, I, let me ask you this. Many, many, many people have seen the movies, you know, Peter oh, Jackson's right, yeah. uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, why would a person who said... Why would you say to a person who said, uh, who says, I've already, you know, I've already seen the movies. Right. are really good. Why read the book? Why? I mean, you had, and the movies are. They're some of the best yeah, movies Yeah, they're, they're very made. good. They really but, are. But um, if you read the novel, then you will get into the mind of these characters to, yeah. to really see what makes. And, and, you know, Tolkien's good about it. They all have flaws. Even, even uh, Gandalf has flaws. And we see them come out. 
But you need to, I mean, the, the closest approximation to reading the novel is doing what we do at my house, and that's watching a marathon where you watch all 12 hours. <laughs> because when you read yeah. the book, you need to invest that time. You need to struggle and journey. You know, uh, Tolkien fought in World War I, and one of the things you did in World War I is you did a lot of marching, right? You mm -hmm. have to keep marching and marching. And they do and marching, a lot of that. And you need yeah. that kind of endurance. So you need to read it and, and dig into it. And again, you know, I, I just finished teaching Lord of the Rings. I spent 16 weeks just teaching that one book. And it's one of those books where if you ask me to list all the Christian stuff, it's a little bit hard. But when you're going through it page by page, it rises up in places you don't expect in understanding about what virtue is, what courage really is. What, what friendship hope, is. What friendship yeah. really is. And, and, and you need to, you know, it, it's almost like the difference between taking an online class and taking it face-to-face. -face. Okay, that's you a good analogy. To, you need yeah. to wrestle directly with this book that is long, but, you know, it's got a very long beginning, but you've got to fall in love with the Shire or you're not going to understand what we're fighting That's for. good, that's and good. And this is another reason to read it is because Peter Jackson didn't get it. And he leaves mm. out one of the most impart, important parts of this whole story is when the hobbits come home. And when the hobbits come home, right. their world has been radically changed. Mm. The, the chapter, The Scouring of the Shire, he completely, he completely left this out because he didn't think it was interesting. Uh, I mean, it didn't even make the extended. I mean, yeah, within, you know, 14 hours, there wasn't, yeah. there wasn't 15 minutes uh, for, uh, for this. So they need to read the, you need to read the book because you get a much bigger picture. And, and the book is not, I mean, I, I too like the movies, but you know, the Battle of Helm's Deep in the movies takes 45 <laughs> minutes and it's just all this carnage. In the book, it's about 10 pages, yeah. you know. I mean, it, it's really not, I mean, nothing like what you, right. you see with regard to, to these matters. He, he focuses more deeply on some other things. And the, Tom Bombadil, you know, that wasn't in the movie either. So that, uh, but it's still pretty entertaining. Um, okay, now that that's that'll we'll end those. There's many, of course, many more books uh, that we would all need to read before we die. So we'll have to wait till after we die. But um, the what about the person, just in general, who says, you know, I'm I'm just really not a a reader. Uh, audiobooks, public yes. book readings, whatever happened to public yes, readings where somebody would go and read a book to people? I mean, thoughts on my son. That? My son has a long commute to work. Uh, he works at Bernie, and so he's listened to the whole Iliad, the Odyssey. I can't believe how much he's listened to, uh, and that's yeah. not a, that's not a bad um, skill to learn sure. to be able to listen well, and absorb. Uh, didn't I mean yeah. Homer collected that's stories true. that yeah. had been told and, and, orally? And, for and, and even though Homer did write it, he almost surely didn't write it down. He was still almost surely illiterate and composed it. Got and, it. And what made Athens great. <laughs> is during the 6th century, <laughs> one of their leaders brought the, what are called rhapsodes, these bards who recited from memory the entire Iliad. They would spend like a four-day weekend listening to the whole thing read out. And it still we need to have those there. guys again. We should, I mean, we should bring who, them back. Who just and I should recite. mention, because Scott mentioned uh, Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you've all heard of Max McLean. He's oh, the yeah, guy yeah, that, yeah, yeah. He's he the narrates one who does the, the one-man Bible show. and yeah. all that. Yeah. If, if you go online... He, had, he does have a version of uh, Pilgrim's Progress that he reads out loud. I did not know so that. So it's very, very good, and that's a good way to, to get into it. But remember, too, I like what you said about Dante, that you don't feel like you've got to get one of these great books and read it over a weekend. Right. Read it devotionally, especially Dante, because it does break up like that. Read a couple cantos a good. night. You know, just slowly read it, like I said, devotionally. Don't feel like you've got to rush through it. 
like those crazy people that like would buy the Harry Potter book at 10 a.m. and read it all night without sleeping. How many of you did that? There are a lot of crazy people out there. <laughs> okay. True confession. <laughs> this is Augustine part two, confessions. Uh, maybe, maybe uh, we all need to hear that people are not, the, these, as some of these may be more dense than others, but these are not inaccessible yep. works if yeah. we give the time. Yeah. C.S. Uh, Lewis has a, has a wonderful line about the importance of reading old books. Uh, he says that, you know, if people want to know something about one of these ancient authors, they oftentimes, you know, they want to know about Platonism. They go buy, they go get a, 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 a dreary book on, on, on Platonism from the library <laughs> that's, you know, 200 pages, and then they're not, they're bored with it. He said, when Really, you should just pull the symposium off the shelf and, and read this book that is 50 pages. Uh, yeah. And, uh, but, but By Plato himself, you know, the dialogue. He says, he's, well, he says not only is it better, it's much more enjoyable. And, you know, we, we do live in a culture that has a short attention span, and this is one of the problems is that, I mean, you know, people have instilled in them a kind of, of a lack of intellectual self-confidence, you know, yes. no fear Shakespeare. We're going to translate Shakespeare <laughs> was in English for crying out loud. We don't have to translate <laughs> it. Um, but so, I mean, we need to we need to recover intellectual self-confidence. We do. That's and, that's a and, great and one term. of the ways that I mean, it's like anything else. If you want to be a better athlete, you got to practice. You know, if you if you want to know something, um, if you want to be an artist, you gotta you gotta paint. I mean, you yeah, gotta, you gotta do these things. And so I would I would start off with reading things. I mean, that are that are more accessible and and if and and, and read smaller you know bits and yeah. and um, and discover the joy of using your imagination to create the pictures. Um, we become so passive. We we look at these screens and and we just accept whatever version somebody wants to give us of this when our minds have the capacity for conjuring up versions of this that are far greater and far uh, more beautiful and complex than the sort of canned image that's given to us. Start slow, mm. you know, work your work your way up. Um, find find joy in in these kinds of things. Mm. Good. It's, Good. It's um, it it. it can be the source of a great deal of joy. And remember that, that good reading is not the same thing as fast reading. Mm. Don't that, feel like I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty slow reader myself, and I'm an English professor. I spend all my time reading. It's speed doesn't make a difference. Take your time and go through it. Um, there's no race. <laughs> okay. I mean, we will die, but I mean, there's no race. <laughs> yeah, but before you die. Uh, so, okay. Uh, let's let's get to some questions here, uh, and, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap this up. Um, what translation? <clears throat> what translation of Homer do you recommend? I teach Fagels. Oh, you teach? I mean, I, I use the Lattimore, but the Fagels is a little bit easier. The Lattimore is difficult. Uh, okay. I I, I got to admit that when I read the Odyssey, I use the Penguin uh, prose translation because it it reads like a novel and it reads pretty well. Which of the books listed should we read first? Well, you, start. You, you start accessibly. I mean, if we're looking at most accessible screw tape letters would be the most That's, accessible uh, of, uh. of all of those. And then maybe Flannery O'Connor or um, 
the um, um, what else is on our, our well? Lord of the Rings is there. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Lord of the Rings. If you know, it's just a, it's just a big chunk of change. You might start with the Hobbit. I mean, read the Hobbit. Oh yeah, the Hobbit. And yeah. then once you've kind of got into that world, then the Lord of the Rings comes a little bit uh, a little bit easier. But Good. but Pilgrim's Progress, Flannery O'Connor, and the Screw Tape Letters would be the three most accessible of those books that we we looked at. But don't be afraid. I mean, I mean, That's one good. of the one of the things about Dante. You don't have to take in the whole enchilada at one time. All of those those cantos, since there's a hundred of them, then the first one has 34, and the next two have 33. One of the things that people have done for years is they've read a canto a day based on what day of the month it is, right? Since it's like Proverbs. I mean, you've got about 31 of these. So at any given time, you can read them and you can just sort of immerse yourself into this world. And Dante actually connects them. So the fifth canto of the Inferno is connected to the fifth mm. canto of the Purgatorio, which is connected. So, but, but jump in. Have a good, have a good time. Fantastic. Uh, you know, one of the things that we do here is we talk about topics that perhaps we don't always, uh, the church is not always known for talking about. And sometimes we have some questions that are along those lines. And so with that in mind, are there LGBT authors that demand our reading? We have an openly LGBT candidate running for president who publicly embraces Christianity, uh, Pete Buttigieg. Uh, how do we respond? Any thoughts on that? I, have, you, have you ever, um, Scott, have you ever heard of a guy named Michael O'Brien? Yes. Uh -huh. Okay, because I just, he wrote a book called Father Elijah. I don't know if you've read that. Powerful book. This is apocalyptic literature, but unlike the Left Behind series, it is literature. I mean, and points it almost touches Dostoevsky. I mean, it's it is literature. Okay. Um, How do you really but, feel about that, Lou? Like, oh my God. Okay. But, but right. I just remember that that Father Brian, that um, that that Father Elijah. If you remember, there is a scene that that brings in homosexuality, but I thought it was done well. Okay. It was done with compassion, but also showing showing the brokenness. In other words, it it. it it deals with that issue, but not in, in a bad way. Just a good example. I mean, you should really watch the show uh, called The Midwife, which is probably the best show on TV. Mm -hmm. And this whole series, this, ep this season, has had a lot about uh, abortion. But it's tried to deal midwife. with both sides. Yeah, called The Midwife. Yeah. I don't know if you've been watching it, but uh, this past Sunday was just unbelievably powerful. And it's trying to deal with that issue, but not just paper over it or make it political, yeah. trying to deal with the, the human tragedy of it. it sure. Um, but I'm trying to Th this, is, this is books to read before you die or shows to watch yeah, before that's, that's a show uh, that you, should you watch. Uh, shows to binge. Uh, oh, Call the Midwife. Oh, the, the book is the book. called Father Elijah by Michael O'Brien. He's a Michael Canadian Brian. writer. A um, couple of things. Um, uh, one of the, the finest, one of my favorite novels of the 20th century and, uh, and one of the finest Christian novels of the 20th century, and I actually thought about putting it on this list, is Brideshead Revisited. Oh. Yeah. By Evelyn Waugh, and um, and it's not. Um, I mean, the the notion of, um, an, of of LBTQ that we have in our context is a is a is a very contemporary it is. phenomenon. Yeah, it is. Um, and um, and there there are all kinds of of important issues that we we need to to think about here. But this story, Brideshead Revisited, 
has both uh, homosexual and heterosexual relationships in it, and and the and um, and one of the relationships the uh, it, that is uh, that is a homosexual relationship is a is a quite powerful friendship that uh, mm. um, that the main character has uh, early on in his um, in his his college days uh, at Oxford, um, and it's it's done quite well. But look, one of the most important maybe the most important poet of the 20th century was, and in the English language, was W.H. Auden. And Auden was gay, and he was a Christian, and, um, and his poetry is without parallel. So if you don't know Auden, you need to read Auden. Um, Auden, um, it, it is, it, I don't want to say that, that Auden didn't struggle with his homosexuality. There is a struggle that's involved there, but it but it was also something that he that he embraced and that he he saw as who he he was. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very important for Christians to be reading um, to be to be reading Auden and uh, and it is. I think as fine a poetry as you're going to get in the English language in the 20th also, century. Also, also true of Oscar Wilde, yeah. who I would say yeah. struggled more than Audrey yep. did, but is but is certainly a believer. Um, yeah, and and is Oscar Wilde Oscar was Wilde. a believer. Yeah, I, I think he I, was. I didn't realize and, and, that. Um, um, Joseph Pierce has written a good a biography of him and showing very that. interesting. And, uh, it's it's. Um, well, and, and this novel was *Brideshead* revisited, *Evelyn Waugh*. By *Evelyn uh, Waugh*, and yeah. *Evelyn* is a man. Yeah, right, right. Looks Made like Evelyn. one of the best miniseries of all time uh, by PBS. Oh, Bright's yes, Visit. and I, I have not seen that. Introduced um, Jeremy Irons to the world. Yeah, and, and there have been a couple of really bad movie versions of Brideshead, but the BBC uh, miniseries is superb. Um, it takes longer to watch than to read the book. Just, just a couple more questions here, and then we'll... Uh, first of all, could you talk just a little bit about Lewis's Space Trilogy? I think you'd enjoy it. I mean, okay, one one thing we need to understand is that the the uh, the late nineteen the late nineteenth century was the golden age of fairy tales and children's literature. Beatrix Potter and Jungle Book and and uh, and, and George MacDonald and all these others. Um, but after World War One, people moved away from fantasy from that kind of stuff, and it went out of favor. And Lewis and Tolkien and their fellow Inklings helped to revive the reputation of things like fantasy and fairy tales and children's literature mm -hmm. and the early kind of science fiction. And, and this was very early science yeah. fiction. I mean, you had early, the, yeah. the 30s and 40s, but Lewis was writing yeah. that in that time. Yeah, in 1938 and the, uh, yeah. 38, 42, 45, he wrote those three. And they're, they're also Christian allegories. But yeah, they're amazing. Put out in space. Let, let, yeah. Let's take this right. and put it out in space. And they're, they're strange. The, the three novels can be read separately. The first novel is like an H.G. Wells. The second one is like a redoing of The Temptation in the Garden. That's right. Yeah, it's it like takes Paradise place on Lost. Venus. Amazing. Yeah. And the third one is the true predecessor of something like This Present Darkness. It's a spiritual warfare Pretty novel. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, uh, in, in the tradition of a guy named uh, Charles Williams, who was friends with Lewis and an inkling and all. Uh, but they're fun. I think you would enjoy them. Good. Good. Uh, and one more, um, in what ways is our society post-literate, more visual? Almost every way. <laughs> yeah. We, we, uh, we lose something there, I think. Uh, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, 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 um, it's sad. But, yeah. but, 
But if we were to revive the, the storytelling kind of tradition, I keep, I don't know, I have this fantasy of people, you know, flocking to hear somebody read a, you know, Dante or something. Well, I mean, and the, I, that's the thing probably is, not going to happen. We, we've, we've, we've decided that entertainment is um, a, a kind of, it's like convenience. Everything must be convenient and it must be entertaining. And if it's not convenient and it's not entertaining, then we think that it needs to be fixed up um, because mm. we don't we don't want anything that is that's inefficient or awkward or causes us to struggle or work or be difficult or ambiguity. We we uh, don't we, we don't like and we, we like everything tied up in a nice. That's right, and boat. we don't want anything that we might think is boring. Right, so so we're we're consumed by. Really, this goes back to Plato about our appetites, right? I mean, that we want these, we want to be satisfied in in this way. And life is just not convenient, and it's not entertaining. And so we we have put a desire to turn the world into a way that the world fundamentally is not. I mean, this is why your friends won't behave. I mean, this is why mm-hmm. life is difficult. I mean, you're never going to get to this perfect life, and and we're back to Plato again because, I mean, the great modern analog to the allegory of the cave, another book that should have been on the list, Walker Percy's The Moviegoer, uh, is, a, is a, an extended presentation of this allegory of the cave. We go to the movie theater, we watch a movie, and in two hours, we go from, you know, uh, things are great, things are horrible, to things are great again. And we want to be as pretty as the people on the movies. We want to have the witty lines. We yeah. want to be able to kill the bad people. And, and we, are, we are imagining the image that, that's up there as if that were the ideal. And, and what Plato shows us in, in the, is that the image is actually the lowest level of reality. And part of what we need is we need to be liberated from these screens. So that's upside down. So in the our allegory of the cave is just that these people are captive to the image, not the, not the actual world. They're captive to an image of how they think the world is, and they have to be freed from that captivity, and then they have to climb out. Well, they're going to pass a fire, first of all, and there's a, people with a little <laughs> bit of knowledge are very dangerous. And you, it's easy to confuse the fire and the sun, but you got to climb out of this cave to, to see a real world that is actually quite discombobulating. This is, in fact, part of what literature does for us. I mean, mm. it is difficult. Wow. It is, in fact, challenging, but it takes us away from the false view that is so pleasurable to us in our contemporary discontent. Mm. So we go back to the great divorce. I mean, the people that are on the bus that want to go back to hell, I mean, they get what they want, right? They don't, they don't actually want that thing that is challenging. Early on in hell, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. They don't want to be in that uncomfortable, painful sort of situation until they, they, would, have to be, they would have to change. Yeah. We don't want to change. One of the best books to help understand this dynamic is called Amusing Ourselves to Death by mm. Neil Postman. Mm. It's a, a, a nonfiction book. Really worth reading, and again, how and he wrote it about thirty years ago now. Yeah, um, and he showed that everybody thought that the prophetic book was going to be nineteen eighty four, 
but he said the it's, real prophetic book was Brave New World yeah. because you know there's two ways to get pe to stop people from reading books. One way is to burn them, the totalitarian way. Right. The other way is to just make them choose not to read them themselves right. by entertaining them to death. Yeah. Uh, and um, but wow, um, but we still need to pull ourselves out of the cave. Yeah, we do. We do. And books can help or us do that. Or be led, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's means. I mean, Socrates. The, the very first line of the Republic is, I went down to the Piraeus. It's a kind of model of Socrates going back. And then later on, after the allegory of the cave, he talks about the responsibility of those who've been, who have had this knowledge to go back in to liberate others. And the whole story is him going down to the, to the port city, which is below the city of Athens. And he, then he, he gets caught up with these friends, and they have this sort of all-night beer and pizza uh, <laughs> argument about the nature of justice. Wow. See, there are perks to reading uh, great books. Uh, okay, uh, let's thank our guests here. This has been uh, really fantastic. Amazing. And uh, y'all have been thinking long and hard. Read well. Good night. Thank you, everybody.